what do you do with these feelings? See, you can't heal what you can't feel. So what I did, I called my sponsor. And I told my sponsor how I was feeling. And I told him about how I missed my sister. And how I wish I could have done more to help my sister. But as we were on the phone, he took me to the part of the book that we had already gone through, where it talked about Jerome was being, that I couldn't help myself. I was beyond human aid. So what made me think I could help my sister? That was some good information at the time to hear, but it didn't take the feeling of, that I was feeling away. So I know today the only way through a feeling is through the feeling. I can't use no alcohol today, y'all, one day at a time to get me to the other side of the feeling. Because what happens to Jerome, when I take a drink, that drink takes me to places that I don't want to go. I end up spending money that I can't afford to spend, and I end up hanging out with people I don't even like. I had my first drink at seven. In hindsight, I don't know why I waited so long. I could have used one in kindergarten. <laughs> I didn't have labels for my feelings. But living vicariously today through the lives, you know, of our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, not mine, our. As you guys have taught me, that all those times I was missing in action, there were people in my life loving me through their prayers. Like I said, I have labels for my feelings, but in hindsight, I can see it in our grandchildren. I felt restless. This is still irritable. Everything you did bothered me. Discontent. I can't find happiness anywhere. The book says, see, the problem I suffer from is the way I think. It centers in my mind. I have a mind that doesn't mind me. Like as I had my first drink at seven, I don't remember much about the taste, but I remember the effect. Now the book says men and women like us, we drink essentially for the effect, right? See, because like I said, at this time, prior to taking that drink, I'm in kindergarten, and I remember that was the first time my mother and I were separated. We went everywhere together. From the time the doctor cut the umbilical cord up until I went to kindergarten, my mother and I, we were inseparable. We went everywhere together. Then this other person came along, the sister I've been talking about. See, growing up, I couldn't stand my sister. And it wasn't because I didn't love her. It was because of my, I'm selfish and I'm self-centered. I think the whole world evolves around my needs, my desires, and my wants. And what happened was, 
Up until my sister was born, I was the baby of the family. And being the baby of the family, when I pointed to something, I usually got it. And when I cried, I usually got picked up. But all that stopped when she was born. I want to get into recovery, so I'm going to fast forward. We're going to get out of Chicago right now. <laughs> We're going to get out of Chicago because I want to talk about how this, this process has transformed my life. But I want to identify first. I had my first drink at seven, and I grew up in an environment where see, we had basements growing up in the Midwest. And it was the responsibility of the children to clean up after the adults because the adults would have card parties, you know, and it was our responsibility to clean up after them and be their form of entertainment. I remember many times I would be given quarters to act the food. I can't call it dancing. <laughs> you know, it wasn't that. I enjoyed doing that. I could see the benefit in doing it. You know? And I've lived like that all my life. I needed to know what was it is for me. I need to know before I took any action, what was I gonna get? And I remember, you know, cleaning up after the adults, they have various types of drinks. And they would also put cigarette butts in these various drinks that they would leave behind. And I remember many times picking the cigarette butts out of the drink. Because remember at seven, I had that Morgan David wine. And I knew one day in my life, I would have to go back to that. Because that was the only thing in my life that was making me feel like that. Like it didn't matter. It seemed like it was going to be OK. And the other little kids, as we're going around picking up these cups with the cigarette butts, you know, they throwing the liquor away. And I get angry, because I needed what was in that cup. See, I didn't want what was in that cup. I needed what was in that cup, because what was happening, there was a lot of argument going on in our household. I had five, I had five older brothers. No, I'm using a lot of past tense, because since I've been sober, Several of my family members, including my mother, have transitioned. Even the brother that encouraged me to go to law school, he too transitioned. You know, he passed December of 2012. <coughs> while we were there, arranging for his final arrangements, there was a lot of bickering going on because nobody wanted to really put in so that we can give him a decent home loan. And my mother, she was very ill at the time. She had both of her legs have been amputated because she had gout. And growing up, I blamed my mother for how my life turned out. Because we were the second African-American family to move in a Caucasian neighborhood called Evanston. 
And at the time, I had all the toys. I had the go-karts, the mini bikes, the mini trails. I had all the stuff. I had a menu of foods to choose from. And all that stopped when she divorced my dad. But see, my dad, let me introduce you to him. He was emotionally abusive, psychologically abusive, physically abusive. And my mother left that, and financially abusive, because my dad, he was like Bill in the book that we read, Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My, my dad, he had these grandiose ideas about who he was. And he always had the come-ups, like Bill, right? He'd always come up with a different way of next time, you know, having it work out. My dad liked playing the horses. <laughs> and the reason he, he and my mother were having a lot of arguments in their marriage because there were many times my dad would show up with no money on Fridays after being paid. And I come to find out my dad was an alcoholic, but he was just a hard drinker. Because the book says we don't pronounce anybody an alcoholic. You know, that individual has to be convinced of who they really are. See, because what convinced me was, you remember being in that place where you wanted to stop drinking and you couldn't? Yeah. Remember being there? You remember being in that place where you desired to stop drinking and you couldn't? Men to be in that place where you needed, desired, and wanted to stop drinking and you couldn't. <laughs> See, when I take a drink, it's like making love to a gorilla. <laughs> I'm not finished till the gorilla said, punk, you can leave now. And that's usually when <clears throat> all the money's been spent. Mm -hmm. And once again, my employer's on the verge of firing me, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody been there? Yeah. Wait, yeah. Your employer said, you know, you miss one <clears throat> more day. <laughs> or you have the same grandparents die again. I'm going you had the same grandmother die five times. <laughs> See, I told so many lies <laughs> that I didn't remember the lie I told to cover the lie that I needed to tell. <laughs> but they were documenting all those absences because before I got terminated from each job that see I didn't lose anything in my life that I don't have now if that car dealership that repossessed my car is still in business I know exactly where will go get it if that I'm married now, but if I wasn't, if that young lady that told me, you know, you got to do something about your drinking, or we can't be together. <laughs> my, my, my answer was, uh, <laughs> you're not packed yet? Because <laughs> that's not a difficult choice for the real alcoholic to make if you give me an ultimatum that either I stop drinking or I stop being in a relationship with you. Because in the end, I was like Bill, I was a lone wolf anyway. I drank by myself, because nobody else wanted to drink with me. Because of all the pitiful, incomprehensible, demoralizing things 
like urinated, you was right me over your house. Everything was fine. Until I took a drink. And then I did strange and absurd things, Les. Like urinating your flower pot. Huh? Or end up in Glendora. But I started off. I'm gonna go from Pasadena to Altadena and I end up in Glendora. Look, Pasadena Altadena is like this. I can walk on a good day from Pasadena to Altadena. How do I end up in Glendora? I suffer from those strange mental blank spots that I cannot bring to the forefront of my mind, like the book says, the pain, the suffering, the humiliation. Or maybe a day or week ago. There are many times I went to happy hour with my co-workers. And after a few drinks, it really wasn't a happy hour. <laughs> and they would have to tell me that we'd go out on Friday, we'd all be scheduled to work that following day, Saturday. And they'd tell me about all <coughs> the things I did. Because I'm a blackout drinker. You have to fill in the the, the blanks for me, you know? And then it talks about how, after doing this over and over again, it seemed like the alcoholic life seems to be the only normal one at the end, you know? At the end, you know? I had been going in and out of the program. And it talks about, in chapter three, The mindset I have each time I made a conscious decision to take another drink, it was because of that great obsession I suffer from, right? It says the great obsession is somehow, someday, I'll be able to enjoy and control my drinking. And then it says the illusion is so astonishing the illusion that I can pull that off. That I'm willing to pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. And I've done that many times, y'all. <laughs> the type of insanity they talk about in step two that I suffer from is not doing the same thing over and over expecting a different result. It's doing the same thing over and over knowing the result. See? Probably early on in my drinking, I drank to be sociable. Or I drank to, you know, know your name or something like that. But at the end, it really didn't matter. At the end, it didn't matter. Because nobody wanted to be around me at the end. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about my surrender. I had been down on skid road so long that the thought of getting up never occurred to me. Because the book talks about where I was in my life. It says the abnormal way of living had become normal for Jerome. The many times I would go to the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous at the War Memorial building in South Pasadena. The many times I would go to the 202, the original one, over on Raymond. Remember that? You had to walk up the steps. Mm -hmm and how I would listen to you guys' stories. But never once did I say, I'm like these people. I'm like, 
My thing was if I ever get as bad as these people. <laughs> Baby, I'll seek out some help. Because I still had stuff. You know? And she hadn't left yet. See, when she left, the dog went with her. Because of the the animal cruelty, I wasn't feeding the dog. You see? Because I'm drinking. That's all I'm doing. I'm not doing no extracurricular activity. I'm not walking no dog. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not feeding no dog. None of that. You know? All I'm thinking about, I could have just got home from the liquor store and been the real alcoholic. It talks about the moderate drinker, you know, in the book, right? The one that can take it or leave it alone, or maybe, you know, can stop altogether or taper off. And then it talks about the hard one, right? The one that given the right information, like a warning from a doctor or a significant other, that individual can stop altogether for a brief period of time, right? But what about me, the real one? The one that's willing to go to the bitter end time and time again. This is my third time, y'all. Starting over from zero. <laughs> you know, I'm not one that wake up with a drink. That's abnormal drinking. <laughs> Why would you want to wake up with a drink? If you have a drink, you need to drink it. Let me tell you about my wife. I met my wife. We've been married now for 27 years. You know? I met her when I made a conscious decision. You guys encouraged me because I, I was talking about going back to school. You encouraged me to go back to school, even though I was fearful of not being able to compete with those 18, 19-year-olds. But at the time, I had responsibility. I owed the IRS $40,000. Oh, back child support, 25000 And I didn't see any humanly way conceivable that I could pay that off. But listen to you guys' story. Once I was able to put the cotton in my mouth and just shut up long enough to hear the message, what you did, you, you showed me how I could do that one check at a time. And it took me six years to pay off the back child support. It would have taken longer. But what happened was, I had a payment arrangement with me, with them. And at the time, I didn't know anything about the law, but anything over 3500 they can come get it. And I remember that day came. When they came and got their money. And I told my sponsor, you know, child support just took my money. <laughs> he said they took their money. You haven't been responsible enough to pay it. So they came and got their money. And it took me six years. But you, and he, he showed me, in hindsight, how good it was that happened in my life. At times, I thought it was a curse, turned out to be a blessing. 
because when they came and got that money, I got free. I got free. I was no longer worried about whether or not I'm going to get arrested for not being able to pay the next installment. Because <laughs> I'm, you know, even though I'm not drinking, but I still got that mindset that I could use this money for something else. <laughs> and it took me nine years to pay off the $40,000 to the IRS. They made four payment arrangements with me and I <laughs> reneged on all of them. Because at the time, Drinking had become paramount to anything else worthwhile. So May 4th, 91 is my surrender date, one day at a time. Like I said, I've been down on skid road so long that the thought of getting up never occurred to me. The abnormal way of living had become normal for Jerome. Mm. And then it goes on to say, I could not differentiate, right? Mm -hmm. The truth from the false. Or, I like saying the truth from the lie. If you're in, here in the park with us tonight, you cannot ever, ever, ever get drunk again on the truth. And what is that truth? Does it get progressively better for us when we make a conscious decision and go back and drink again? Or does it get progressively worse? I can't hear you. That's the truth. That's the truth. See, before I got sober, I called the police on myself. I mean, one day, you know, I'm working for aerospace company. And I got so drunk doing that Duran Leonard fight. Remember that one? Where they had to make up a fight because they missed one? Because Duran was having stomach problems. Remember they had to make up one? And we had to, at the time, I'm bowling in Eagle Rock, right? The bowling alley. And we had to bowl eight games. For a drunk like me, what an order. <laughs> so at the end of the night, everybody else, you know, they say, well, I've had enough. You know, I'm going home. I need to drive. <laughs> My head said, you do some of your best drinking, driving drunk. So I pass out in the parking lot. And I come to, I'm in the back seat. I call the police. Tell them somebody stole my steering wheel. <laughs> four, they had, four squad cars showed up. <laughs> Mike, do you hear me? Four squad cars. When they got there, they called some other buddies. They said, you got to come out here and see this. <laughs> this guy, they said, God, they said, this idiot. <laughs> called us saying somebody stole his steering wheel. <laughs> we get here, this idiot passed down the back seat. <laughs> I've had a lot of those pitiful and comprehensible demoralizing situations happen to me. And rather than taking me, you know, giving me a DUI, what they did was they took me to the police station and they let me dry out. Mm. And they let me off. They let me go the next morning. <laughs> I wasn't free, y'all. I was loose. 
Because I went, after that experience, I went back to doing the same thing over and over, thinking next time it's not going to happen. And every time it did. So May 4th, 91, my sobriety date. May 3rd, 91, one day at a time, the last night that I've eaten out of anybody's dumpster. And I passed out in this cardboard box that I had been existing in. May 4th, 91, I'm face down in the mud with everything I own next to me in a trash bag. How did it happen, y'all? At the age of 23 years old, I was a quality control engineer, making $75,000 a year. How did I end up here at the end? And back then, it was on 5th and St. Julian. They didn't have the fenced-off areas that they have today. And I, here I am. I come to in this cardboard box, and I look over, and I see a rat. <laughs> the rat looks at me, shakes his head, and turns around and walks away. Man, it don't get no worse than that, y'all. The rat doesn't even want to keep me company. <laughs> so with tears in my eyes, I just cried out, God, please help me. I've done that many times before I was getting ready to sit, get sentenced to Wayside, Biscaloo County, Superback, one of those penal systems, right? Institution. But it seemed like this time it was just different. Less, it just felt different. Because every bone in my body ached. Every hair on my body hurt. That's where I was. And with tears in my eyes, I just cried out, God, please help me. I had done that many times. Like last time, Judge sentenced me to five years probation. That's cruel and unusual punishment. So I had four and a half years, my head said I've done long enough. So needless to say, how much time I got left? As much as you need. Okay, needless to say, <laughs> yo, I end up in another situation. But see, I know today that, see I choose to call my higher power God. He made me just where I was. He has continuously provided my needs Yo, not necessarily my wants, because the book says my needs have always been met, but my wants will never be satisfied. God just blessed me, yo, with a, a brand new car, right? It's blue, my favorite color. I drive it off the lot and I see somebody with a different shade of blue and I want it. <laughs> Never satisfied. My spirit is always restless. Like I said, I got a mind that doesn't mind me. And I remember that last time. Unbeknownst to me, the judge had held jurisdiction over my case. Not that anybody out there know what I'm talking about, right? Basically, he says, well, if you do anything, you get arrested again, 
Don't call a lawyer, bring a toothbrush. You are going to the penitentiary. And as you guys can see, and you ladies can see, I'm too thin to win, and if I go to the pen, my name's gonna change from Jerome to Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in no delusion that Bubba is waiting on me. <laughs> I'm in no delusion, <laughs> you know? And I remember, once again, my higher power to intervene without my permission. Because there were three of us. <clears throat> and the judge had the first individual sentence himself. He says, Mrs. Defendant, what time is it? He says, Your Honor, it's 1020. He says, that's how much time you got. Second individual, 75 years old. And the police caught him with other substances other than alcohol. See, I'm, I'm an alcoholic anonymous, so I respect where I am, even though I go to meetings all over. You know, I go to alcoholics anonymous, I go to AA, CA, NA, NA but the DA. <laughs> <laughs> It's fine with me. I go where the message is, you know? And I know we all, we are more alike than we are different. And the, the book says the substance, the drinking, is only a symptom. Mm -hmm. My main problem is, isn't that I can't stop. My problem is I can't stay stopped because of the obsession of the mind, right? And the obsession is that irrational thought to drink that runs parallel to the irrational thought. You know, the irrational thought runs parallel to the same thought. You know what happened last time, you know? But see, that's that quiet voice. I don't hear that one. I hear the one I, this time it's gonna be different. And. It's through my own voice. Once I make a conscious decision, a supreme sacrifice, like the book says, to take another drink, and I end up in that same pitiful and incomprehensible moralizing state, now my mind attacks me. It tells me how stupid I was for doing it. Once again, it talks about on page eight in the book, in Bill's story. This is where I was. May 4th of 91. It talks about no words could tell of the loneliness and despair Jerome felt in that cardboard box, eating out of those dumpsters, selling my blood and my plasma for another drink. And then it says, quicksand has stretched around me in all directions. And it seemed like the more I struggled, trying to get out of my situation, it seemed like the deeper I sank. And then it talks about, I had met my match. Huh? I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol had become my master. <laughs> I did whatever, y'all. I did whatever I needed to do to get to the next drink. I didn't realize that they had hors d'oeuvres at happy hour until I got sober. <laughs> huh? I don't know about you, I didn't go there to eat. I went there to drink. I had a special booth. Remember I told you at 23 years old I became a control engineer? But the disease I suffered from, alcoholism, 
even one day at a time after 30 years, it's still called alcoholism, not alcoholism. That disease, see, it doesn't care if I come from Yale or jail, Park Avenue, Park Bench, State Penn, or Penn State. Its primary purpose is to see me once again crawling around on my knees, asking somebody for a quarter, whatever I need, to try to get Shorty out of jail. We call Shorty, that's your dog, that Thunderbird. Huh? There were times I drank the tangerine. You know, there were times I drank the Martell, the Hennessy, the Chevy's Regal. But most of the time, <clears throat> my drink was the bottom stuff. You have to blow the dust off the bottle to find mine. Because they've been down there so long. Because no, they, they rock good. Nobody wants to drink it. And we talk about that pop off. Huh? That Gordon G, anybody has that Gordon G? Yes. Huh? <laughs> Thank God, y'all, we're not living like that. So, May 4th, 91, I just cried out, God, please help me with tears in my eyes. I slid into the bus stop. And there were five bus drivers that wouldn't let me on the bus because I had just the night before Fit my whole GR check with people I just met. What calls them fair weather friends, right? And God, remember I told you I suffer from a disease that's getting progressively worse. At 23, I'm making seventy-five thousand dollars a year, and I cannot even afford to pay three hundred dollars a month rent. Cause I'm the real one, y'all. <laughs> Maybe earlier on I was a moderate drinker, the one can take it or leave it alone. Or the hard one, you know, one to keep the job or whatever, I would stop briefly or taper off so that they, I can get the heat off. Huh? But then it talks about what that is when you hear everybody around us say, he's such a nice person, right? When he's not drinking, huh? Look at his, look at, look at his, look at his family. Look at what he's he's ready to give up. But the book calls that frothy emotional appeal. Anybody drink that draft beer? We know that 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 froth is what's on top, right? And we know that foam is airy. It has no substance. And we talk about frothy emotional appeal. It has no substance. It talks about the message that the real alcoholic, that I, the real alcoholic, me, that message has to have depth and weight. And what is that message? One day at a time is the message I tell me that today, God, I don't want to drink. Mm -hmm. See, your story can be amusing, your story can be tragic. But the story that I have to be convinced of is my own. See, I'm not worried about yet. We talk about you eligible too? I don't want to experience the again. Never again do I want to be helpless. Never again do I want to be hopeless. And never again do I want to be homeless. 
Then the six bus driver let me on the bus. And I'm trying to, he, he said, just get on the bus. I'm trying to explain to him there's five other bus drivers that wouldn't let me on the bus because I had no money. <laughs> I just spent my old GR check with people I just met, right? And I don't know about you, when I'm drinking, I'm not taking care of my hygiene or anything like that. And it's, it's, it's really hot outside. And uh, I'm funky as a billy goat, right? You know, my hair is matted. And I'm trying to explain to him. He said, just have a seat. So as him and I were talking, he says, by the way, where are you going? <laughs> I said, I'm trying to get back to this homeless shelter in Pasadena called Union Station. Huh? He says, once again, God had intervened. We talk about Eskimos, right? We've had Eskimos in our life. Mm -hmm. People that have always been around us willing to help us, right? He says, I'm not going to Pasadena, but I'll give you enough transfers to get you there. Mm -hmm. Huh? Second part of the miracle was he wasn't supposed to be working that day. The only reason he's working that day to pick me up at that particular moment, at that particular spot, it was as a result of a coworker calling in and says, you work for me, I'll work for you. Mm -hmm. Huh? <laughs> the third part of the miracle that got me off Skid Road, he wasn't even supposed to be on that route. The only reason he was on that route, that particular day, to pick me up at that particular moment, <clears throat> at that particular spot, as a result of him having the detour to where I was. You, we see all those high rises as we on the Harbor Freeway, we see all those big buildings. They were starting to put those up. <laughs> so today, if you hear within the sound of my voice, you're a miracle, you be the ruler. And you be the one that can't stop no matter how great the need or desire or the walk. And one day at a time, we're not drinking, y'all. Can you imagine if we were all drinking? Can you imagine what this park would look like right now? <laughs> oh. And as a result of us not drinking, y'all, we got our families back in our life. Today, the role model we want our children, our grandchildren, in my case, our great-grandchildren to see is me. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. See, when I got here, I suffered from no self-esteem. But Alcoholics Anonymous allows me just to be me. I'm perfectly imperfect. <laughs> you know, even after 30 years, <laughs> even after 30 years, Rick, I know people still don't like Jerome. <laughs> but see, your opinion of me doesn't have to become my reality. Huh? 
Tim is dark and sweet as seeds candy. Everybody don't like chocolate. <laughs> um, I like what I see in the morning when I get up. I got a sign on the mirror that you're the problem. So I get a constant reminder. They, I get up, I say, God, that will be done, not mine. Because my first thought when I get up is not about how many alcoholics I can help today. It's about how much I can get, how often I can get it, and how less energy I can get getting. Because the reason I'm here is because I'm not all there. Like I said, my wife and I, we've been married for 27 years. I met her when I made a decision to go back to school. I was 34 years old, full of fear, not knowing if I could meet with those 18, 19 year olds. And I went back to school to be a paralegal. At the time, the brother I spoke about that transitioned in December, right? And 30 days later, my mother transitioned. And while we were there making arrangements for his uh, home going, like I was talking about, right? I saw the struggle that the family was having and all the bickering, and I didn't want that for our mother. So I told my, the other brothers, I said, you know, we need to make sure that mother has insurance. We need to make sure that when she leaves here, she can leave with the same dignity that she lived with. Because there are many times, see, I'm an African, I, I am a latchkey kid. There are many times my mother wouldn't be home when I get home from school. And she was on my resentment list for many reasons. And that was one of them. But see, never once did I think about the tremendous sacrifices that our mother was making, just so that we would not have to go hungry. So that we could have clean clothes. See, they weren't the best of clothes, but they were clean. See, I wore hand-me-downs, okay, older brothers, right? Mm -hmm. I wore what they didn't wear out. There are many times I would show up at school with something that my one of my older brothers wore that had patches on the sleeves or, or rolled up four or five times at the bottom of the jeans, you know, but I knew because when we, we went from living in the suburbs to welfare, huh? And we went from having a menu of foods to choose from to food stamps, huh? And here in Chicago, they call it the Windy City. It's not because it's fashionable to say because there were many more than it was 10 below zero. And my mother would get up in the morning and the snow would be up to her thighs and she would brave the elements and working two jobs so that we would have something to eat. And I'm certain there are many parents like that out here in this audience. We've made tremendous sacrifice so our children can have a better life. Okay? That's what I've been able to see as a result of this 12-step process that you guys have introduced me to through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you told me I suffer from the obsession of the mind. We talk about the irrational thought running parallel to the rational thought, right? 
And then we talk about the allergy, right? The, what it is, once I take the first one, my mind has nothing to do with whether or not I'm gonna continue. Because I've set off the allergy. And the result of that, it leads to that phenomenon of crazy. A phenomenon is something unexplainable, right? Once again, how did this happen? Once again, how did I spend all the rent money? When I went out to go get drunk, I, I would hide money from myself. Like I didn't know I put the money in my sock. Like I didn't know I put money in my shoes. Now many times I have neighbors holding my money, then once I got, you know, I spent all that money I took to the bar, I would be knocking on people's doors two and three o'clock in the morning asking for my money. Anybody else did that? <laughs> See, because I'm, I, the gorilla said, feed me. I don't care what you have to do. I don't care how many people you have to hurt. See, because the people that I hurt are the ones that are closest to me. I don't know about you. I did a lot of scandalous things out there, y'all. I used to snatch old ladies' purses. Huh? Once I got the obsession on me. Huh? Once I got that, that phenomenon craving on me. See? Everybody was a victim. Huh? And I explained to my, my sponsor, you know, what I had done in the inventory, right? that I need to make amends, but I don't know who the names of these ladies. I don't know how to get in touch with them. He says, Jerome, what you need to do, because you were being selfish and self-centered when you did those things, I want you for one year to volunteer at a convalescent home. Because you were abusing the elderly, now it's time for you to be of service to the elderly. That's how I was able to make the amends, huh? For a whole year, I would clean bedpans. For a whole year, I would be there in the kitchen making certain that the meals would be taken out of the kitchen timely. And I would clean up the spills as a result of, you know, our elders maybe spilling some beverage on themselves and I would make certain that they were okay before they left. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me, y'all. Huh? It allowed me to go back to school after being a very successful paralegal. See, I met my wife, like I was about to say, and we graduated number one and two in the class. I graduated class valedictorian, and when it's convenient, I let her know <laughs> I graduated number one. <laughs> but the problem is, it's never convenient. <laughs> See? I may think the grass is greener on the other, <coughs> other side, and I get over there, it's astroturf. <laughs> it ain't even real. Because <clears throat> I see many of my friends, you know, leave their spouses as a result of thinking that something's better on the other side. But my experience has been, it's cheaper to keep it. <laughs> see, because she's my ride or die, you know? When we met, I had nothing, you know? Like I said, I just finished eating out of dumpsters. <laughs> huh? I 
just finished some of my plasma at the various blood banks. I just finished eating my meals at the various missions. But she saw potential in me, which meant that I wasn't really worth much then. But if she make an investment, maybe I could change. And she did that. And our first date, she paid for it. We shared a hamburger together. But now if we go to McDonald's, Mike, she can have a meal supersized. <laughs> Why don't she get that value meal, y'all? <laughs> she get all, a whole soda and all that. She get all that. Because if I have anything to share, it's going to be with her. Huh? That's what you guys have taught me, a sense of responsibility. You know? So after being a very successful paralegal, I, I, I made a conscious decision I wanted to go back to school. Because growing up as a child, I used to watch Perry Mason. <clears throat> And I said to myself, one day I'm going to do that. But see, everybody in my neighborhood, <laughs> I saw a lot of criminals. I didn't see any attorneys, but my brother had became one. You know? And I told him about what my dream was, because you know, I scored high on the LSAT, right, the entry exam. And I, I was telling him, you know, I want to go to law school, but I have no money. He said, have you thought about, like he did when he convinced me to go to paralegal school, have you thought about financial aid again? Huh? He said, and how long is the program going to be? Like he told, he talked to me, convinced me to go to paralegal school, two-year program. He said, Jerome, if you, if you live two years longer, you're going to be two years older. Huh? So you might want to do something positive with your life. And that's how he convinced me to go to law school. Because my, my credit score, y'all, would nobody give me a loan. They had to create a new graph to find my score it was so low. Now it's over 800. Because you guys have taught me to pay those, those debts off one check at a time. And I did that. I went to the dean of students. I struggled. There were many times I had money to go from the midterm to the finals. But I'm here to tell you, if God brings us to it, your higher power will bring you to it, he'll bring you through it. And if you can conceive it and believe it, with a higher power in your life, you can achieve it. So don't give up on your dreams. Mm. And after years struggling, you know, I went to the dean of students. See, you have to bury your pride before your pride buries you. I said, I'm struggling to stay in your law school. And he said to me what many of you said to me over the years. A closed mouth doesn't get fed. And they made payment arrangements with me. When I graduated law school, I graduated no bills. And, when, and as a result, I've been able to help some members in the fellowship clear up the records of their past. Today, I'm no longer a, a liability in my community. I'm an asset. Today, I go to the community centers in the neighborhood, and I talk to the youth, and I tell them a little bit about my story and let them know you don't have to go down as far as I did. You know, that's what you guys have given me. You know, we talk about we do this for fun and for free, this altruistic movement, huh? It's like, so with that, I want to thank you guys again for allowing me to come out. You know, I always enjoy talking about how God has transformed my life. Well, let's get honest. I like talking about me. Let's get honest. I like talking about me. <laughs> like I told you, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. <laughs>
So though I so they love you today, I have a God that loves you and so do I. And my prayer for each and every one of us, don't break down before the breakthrough. Love you guys. Yeah. Go ahead, let's get up there. here for the following week bring some food or something see Fernando because we need a lot of help to, to run this meeting one person is too much you know and everybody that helped this week we really appreciate it let's give him a hand all right yeah. Yeah, so, many, so much good food we'll be here next week next week we go we go to daylight savings time so we'll have some light yeah mm -hmm. this is our second year here you know, it's, it's just been a, a blessing to all of us to be here, you know. And uh, I'm going to read, uh, I'd like to thank everybody for sharing. Rick, thanks for leading us and uh, coming out. I know him a long time. 1960-something, right? Yeah, we used to sell cars on Atlantic Boulevard. <laughs> He used to be a good-looking guy with a bad attitude. <laughs> <laughs> and here's what happened. This is the promises. If we are painstaking about the phase of our development, we will be amazed before we're halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not forget the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we've gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of usefulness and self-pity self will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Now, after a moment of silence for the alcoholic that's still suffering, in and out of these rooms and the innocent children caught in the crossfire, please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Whose Father? Our, Our Father, Father, who art, art in heaven, hallowed be, be thy name. Thy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give, give us this day our daily, daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Keep coming back.
Ten minutes, right? Whatever. Appreciate whatever you go. All right. Okay, you guys. My name's Henry, and I'm uh, I'm still an alcoholic. Henry. And I say that because when I came in here, I I hated that word and uh, that label, but I'm a grateful recovered alcoholic. Recovered from the drink, but not the defects. And uh, you know, I uh, my sobriety date is uh, October 17, 2010. I'm in my 12th year. And uh, you know, I uh, I noticed there's seven of us here, and seven is God's number and uh, perfect number. And that's what happens to be my number. And uh, numbers are very important to me. But uh, you know, the most important thing though is my relationship with the Lord. Today, as I was sharing with Les, you know, I, I was coming back from uh, lunch and I was coming back, and all of a sudden, a gush of wind just just happened to pass through me and I just sat down at my desk I was doing my job and the Holy Spirit says you know what you're not spending enough time with me you're spending too much time on uh, Facebook with these ladies and all that so you're doing your will so how do I spend time with the Lord here in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, I want to thank the I want to thank the guy that 12 stepped me father Ray Kirk 41 years sobriety he got sober at the same age I did, 46. And uh, you know what? His words resonated in my in my heart. May of 2010, he goes, Henry, you go to those AA meetings, your living problems will be solved. You don't even need to go to church. And I feel God more at the meetings than I do at church. I mean, I go to church over here at Cornerstone where me and Les goes. But, uh, you know, when I was new here, I came in here fighting. Alcohol was my master. Alcohol was my God. Alcohol was everything to me. I had no reservations of ever, ever stopping drinking at all. I came here with a lot of anger, a lot of issues, but my surrender was my ex-wife uh, happened to be my bottom. It talks about that in step one. And that's where the program is at, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, all 12 of them collectively, they have spiritual principles. Um, but that's where I actually, with, I'm with my third sponsor right now, and we're going through step two. It talks about, came to believe that power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Because when I came in here, I was crazier than a jailhouse rat. Les saw me. Fernando saw me. Fernando actually had a bet that I'd, uh, you know, I'd go out again and, uh, you know, because I had anger issues, but... You know, I also have an issue with gambling and, and lust and drugs. See, I got all four addictions. But the addiction of all the addiction is alcohol. The one that I could not master. I needed help from above. And when I came in here new in 2010, Fernando was my first sponsor, by the way. Then I had Steve Weibel, and then now I got uh, Guillermo. But when I came in here... I, I sat down and I listened and I read a lot. I felt safe in these rooms. I didn't feel safe out there. Because Lord, Lord uh, you know what, I uh, got one DUI that I uh, got a reprieve on. I'll talk about that next time when I speak on March 18th. I can talk for an hour, hour and a half. But I felt safe in these rooms, you guys. And I read the books. The one that caught me was on 417 ex uh, Acceptance. People, places, and things. That's why I got drunk. Resentment is the number one offender. 
it destroys more alcoholics. It talks about that in page uh, 63. And I read that, and I read that, and see, all I did was think and drink, think and drink, and I should be dead right now. I've been through a lot, you know, I just got through COVID the second time, and you know, I sat there, I was, I was coughing a little bit, because I got a dry cough, I don't have COVID no more, and I started praying, and you know what? I started praying to God, and you know what? Guess what? The cough is gone, because he wants me to speak. He's the one that is actually speaking through me. Not me. When I was new, I was too chicken to speak. But he's the one that speaks through us. And, you know, we're here to help each other. The, in the program, it talks about the chip. It talks about recovery. Recovery is God's word. It talks about, I need a psychic change. Reading the books, the AA book, the 12 and 12. Unity is the fellowship and service is the Holy Spirit. And I've learned a lot. You know, and sky's the limit. You know, our meeting on Monday, we're, solutions, we're incorporating the Bible. Because everything came from the Bible, the AA book and the, and the steps. The book of James, the book of Corinthians, the love chapter, the Sermon on the Mount. So, you know, spirituality, you know, when I was drinking, it was all about me. It was all about the flesh. And you know what? I come in here, I am a spiritual person. Maybe because I'm a Pisces, lots of laughs. But you know what? It's funny. You know what? Yeah, I uh, I like spirituality. I love reading the Bible. I love reading uh, the 12 and 12, the big book. But more importantly, I like having a fellowship with you guys because it's a we program. It talks about we because when I was out there, it was all about me. Self-pity, poor me, pour me another drink. But uh, like I said, when I was new, I just did a lot of listening and I just felt safe here and... Uh, in my first year, I did that, that dreaded fourth step that everybody box about. It's killed a lot of my friends. I, I was looking at all the pictures of all the guys that have died, and I have them, you know, in my book. And that's what keeps me humble. Because if I were to drink again, I'll die right away, you know. My last drink was July 10th of 010. I had eight beers. And who would have thought that would be my last drink? Our uh, co-founders... Uh, Bill Wilson had four beers on December 10th of 1934, and Dr. Bob had one beer June 10th to perform a surgery. And you know what? I love those guys. Dr. Bob, very spiritual. He had the craving for alcohol for two and a half years. I had it for a year and a half. I come to these meetings, and you guys are talking about alcohol. I'm going to die. How can I live without my best friend? I'm going to die and you know what? A year and a half, God removed it. Because nothing comes easy in my life. I have to work for everything. And you know what? I don't even think about alcohol. When I was in the hospital and I hadn't gone to no meetings, I didn't think about it. But I can't go very long without meetings. I went 18 days. I was starving for a meeting. See, I can't go very long. And then, you know, I like going to meetings. I haven't been going. There's been a lot of football on me and Dave were watching the championship game on Monday. But today, you know what? I'm doing this meeting. Thank you, Fernando, for having me speak. And I'm going to do the book study. And this is where I have a relationship with God. And uh, you know, going back to my first year, I did that fourth step. And then the next year, we dumped it. And uh, it was amazing because I felt God's presence. Uh, when me and Steve finished it, 
it was, I went into my, I went, uh, lied down and I felt God's presence. Bill Wilson had the, uh, the experience where he's in the hospital, in Towns Hospital, and he feels that white light come. I've had that in here too. I, I, I used to, you know, read about that. I read a lot of books. I've had that experience. Matter of fact, I had it a couple weeks ago at the book study where the room is bright. I can't even feel my heart. Best experience ever. Better than alcohol or drugs. To feel in God's presence for that brief moment, for that minute. That is awesome. That is the best high, the spiritual high that I've experienced. That's why I keep coming back. And, uh, so anyway, so I, I did that for, uh, that fourth step, the fifth step, and I was going through a separation, a divorce. Went through a divorce in 2016. Hey, Randy. And uh, you know, it was tough for me. 2016 was tough. I lost my family. And uh, in 2017, God provided my, my house over here in, uh, in Azusa. God has provided all of my needs, not my wants. I learned that in here. And more importantly, there's an old saying, many are called and few are chosen. We are the chosen few. He's called me to AA. Back in 2006, when I was jumping off a table and dancing with all these girls, I heard his voice. I heard his voice. He was calling me back then. And you know what? It's been, I don't know how much time I got, Fernando. But uh, you know what? These... Uh, these 11 plus years have been awesome, you guys, and uh, I just want to thank everybody here, and I want to thank Ray Kirk, and more importantly, I want to thank a loving God. I want to thank you, God, who kept me sober. I love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. Being in the hospital brought me even closer to the Lord, and you know what? He's going to use me, and I'm going to help people, and... More importantly, I'm going to do His will. That third step, which was the hardest, getting a little bit easier. So with that, I'll stop sharing. Thanks for letting me share, you guys. And now I want to introduce our main speaker, Joey. Hi, Joey. Thank you, man. All right, guys. Appreciate yeah. your, uh, your share. This is a white light experience right here. Um, I'm Joey and I'm an alcoholic. I'm Joey. Thank you, Les, for asking me to come out and share my ex experience, strength, and hope. Um, whenever I come out to a meeting and I hear us all going through the, uh, the format, we're reading the steps and we're reading the traditions I always think about like how many other meetings are reading those things at the exact same time across the world. You know, there's millions and millions and millions of alcoholics and uh, hundreds of thousands of meetings and there has to be thousands going on at the same time. And when I think about all those people saying the words that, you know, Bob and Bill gave us, it's like, how could you not feel a part of, you know? So I'm here to share uh, what happened, what it was like, and what it was like, uh, or what it's like now. What's how much time do I got, Les? You got till seven ten. Ooh, okay. Yeah, you could, what time is it now? Okay. I don't think you guys. I don't think you guys want to be here all night. No, no. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, 
So uh, I, I'm very fond of the city of Glendora. I had my first drink in the city of Glendora. Um, I was raised in Covina and um, much like many other alcoholics that I know, my life was very, uh, it was full of turmoil growing up. I had a very physically and mentally abusive dad who was also a fellow alcoholic, untreated. And um, I had my mom, she was a, a waitress at South Hills Country Club and not a non-alcoholic, a hardcore Al-Anon. Uh, but what do you expect with a kid like me, you know? Um, and we, we, we grew up in Covina. I, I, was, I moved, I was one of those kids that moved like every year, you know? I, maybe, maybe a little less than every year. I, I think I counted one time and I had moved, you know, 18 times by the time I was 18 years old because we were always trying to, you know, make things better. And maybe if we move here, it'll be different. If we get another house, it'll be better, so on and so forth. And uh, I have two younger siblings, a brother and a sister. And um, I have a very close relationship with them today. I have a very close relationship with my mom today. And uh, my dad is, you know, in his mid sixties, he lives right down the street from here and he's still doing the deal, you know? And uh, very often I think about him and I pray for him. And um, the only reason I know that I can't force him into this thing is because nobody could force me when I needed it most. So I, I had my first drink when I was 19 years old. It was in Glendora at a trailer park off of Compromise Line down there off of Lone Hill by the high school. And growing up through high school, I was, always, uh, I was always that one guy in my group who didn't drink and didn't do drugs, right? So I, I called myself a straight edge. And I was, uh, I was kind of in the punk rock scene and everybody else around me was drinking and using. And I was, I, I remember like physically and mentally being scared to drink from the time that I was like 12, 13, seeing people do it, doing it around me. I was like, ah, I don't know about this. My mom did a pretty good job of scaring me, right? And I don't know why and I don't know how, but at some point when I was at that trailer park in Glendora, we, I had a girlfriend who her mom would always provide everybody the booze and she was going out for a, a booze run and I said why don't you give me one tall can of Mickey's malt liquor and um, I wanted Mickey's malt liquor because I thought it was a really cool looking beer you know really tough looking punk rock looking beer and I had that uh, that tall can of Mickey's and I drank it down nothing bad happened and I continued on with my night and I, and I think that's the only time I ever only had one, you know? And so um, I had recently graduated high school at the time and I was trying to go to college. And so drinking, it wasn't an everyday thing. It started out like every other weekend. And then, you know, I would, I would, I would get a three pack tall can of Mickey's, you know? And then a three pack turned into a six pack and then a six pack turned into two forties. And you guys kind of know the rest of the story. And so by the time I was probably 21 years old, 20, 21 years old, I was drinking very often. I was still trying to hold my life together. I was going to Citrus College and, um, and it just wasn't working, man. You know, when I, was, when I was drinking with my friends, I felt like I was on top of the world and nothing could stop me. And it was the best feeling ever. I was, I was you know, I was invincible. And, uh, and when I wasn't, I was struggling through life and I was struggling to, 
go to school. I was struggling to show up to my job. I was a, uh, I was a lake lifeguard at the time at Santa Fe Dam, LA County Lake Lifeguard. And, um, and I was at work one day and I'd, you know, I'd been, been doing a decent amount of drinking. And at the end of the day, there was a kid who went missing, right? And uh, this happened all the time at Santa Fe Dam. It was called an LSW, stands for last seen in the water. And, and it's a you know, possible drowning, but that, that really never happened, right? I'll, what would happen is we would get the call, we'd start looking for the kid, and then um, you know, he'd come walking from the snack bar with a corn dog. Like, hey, I was just you know, getting a snack or whatever. So we didn't think anything was gonna be different this time. And we started, uh, we started doing our lifeguard thing. And the, and the protocol is to lock arms with your fellow lifeguards and you do a kind of a foot sweep along the bottom of the swim area. And we're doing our deal and we're like, this kid's gonna walk up anytime. And we start getting a little deeper. And so when you get a little deeper, you know, you can't sweep the bottom with your foot anymore. So you're still next to everybody and you have to dive down. There's zero visibility. That's like a, it's not a lake. It's a, <laughs> it's a pond of some sort. I don't know, you can't see anything in there. But you dive down and then you have to feel the lake bed, right, with your hands and you're slowly swimming forward. And on the third dive, I grabbed an arm and I was like, it flashed in front of me and I was like, this cannot be real. And it was real. And I pulled this, uh, this 16 year old waterlogged kid um, up to the surface. He had been under for about three hours. His family was on the beach screaming and uh, it was very traumatic. And I had nightmares about it for a long time. And it just so happened to be that that night there was this big end of the summer lifeguard party going on at, a, at somebody's house. And that was the first night that I got, got alcohol poisoning in my life. And I know exactly why. And it was because I was just trying to drink that trauma away. And as I progressed through AA, what I realized is, is that really my entire drinking career was just trying to drink the trauma away. Not just from that, but from all the other shit that I went through in my life, you know? And, dr and you can drink and drink and drink and your problems are not gonna, you know, they're not gonna go away. They're gonna stay with you. But through AA, they become useful to somebody else. And I don't know if there's any other place I can, I can, uh, I can name that the same thing happens. So I get alcohol poisoning. I wake up at 4 a.m. with the phone to my ear in the shower and it's my mom. <laughs> She's freaking out, you know? And uh, I was okay. I slept it off for about 48 hours. And one thing led to another. And two months later, I was joining the Coast Guard, right? So I got recruited into the Coast Guard from the water polo pool deck at Citrus, Citrus College. And when I joined the Coast Guard, I consider that being my first of many geographics. They shipped me off. I got stationed in Hawaii for two and a half years. And I found myself at 21 years old, getting paid about four grand a month on the government's dime with a duty schedule of two days on, two days off, two days on, two days off. And uh, that was pretty easy for me to keep showing up to work in the Coast Guard. And it was very easy for me to just get hammered drunk all the time, right? So uh, we got hammered drunk all the time. And I saw, uh, I saw a lot of cool shit when I, was, when I was serving in the Coast Guard. And I saw a lot of uh, intense stuff when I was in the Coast Guard. 
and I ended my Coast Guard career in New London, Connecticut, which was a big difference from Lihui, Kauai. <laughs> and there's not much to do in New London other than get hammered drunk. And that's what I did. And uh, five years had gone by. And I remember reflecting on what had changed in those five years. And what had changed was I could stomach more booze. I had a couple more bucks in my pocket, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, I was in the, in the exact same place as I was when I, when I joined. I, um, I wasn't done yet. I came back to California and I met, uh, I met her, which we all know who her is. And uh, I'm sure we all have a her. Um, or him and um, and she drank like me and she had a one and a half year old daughter and we got together and um, we tried to raise that daughter the best we could and we were extreme hardcore alcoholic parents uh, used to have this peeing problem when I got hammered drunk right and uh, I would I would piss in <laughs> Really anywhere, pissing closets, kitchen cabinets, backyards, front yards, so on and so forth. And I'm not talking about like sleeping. I'm talking about like, you know, sleepwalking, being unconscious and just, and letting it go, you know? And um, they talk about pitiful, incomprehensible demoral demoralization. And you'd think that the pissing in the kitchen cabinets at your friend's mom house would get you there. But, uh, you know, one time, one time I peed in my daughter's crib while she was in there sleeping, you know? And I was woken up by a bludgeons of slaps and kicks from my then girlfriend, de deservedly so, you know? But um, I think that might be one of the most pitiful, incomprehensible things that I maybe have ever felt, you know? And um, we kept drinking, we kept, uh, we kept partying, moved to Laverne, the cops knew where my house was at, when they would come by at 10 a.m. in the morning and I'd still be awake with the bonfire out in front, in the front yard, smoldering, I'd wave to them, beer cans surrounding me. And we were really just trying to do the best we can. You know, like that's all I, all I ever really wanted was just to be a normal person. I just wanted to be able to have my little house in Laverne with my dog and my little family and everything to be okay. And it was always, it was always out of reach, by a fair, by a fair amount, by a fair distance. It was, I, I was never really close to getting there. But that's, that's really all I ever wanted. And um, I, I did two more geographics when I was trying to have my family, just because when I get scared, I don't really know what to do, other than just run. And so I bought a one-way plane ticket to Costa Rica, with no plan. I landed in San Jose and hitchhiked to a small beach town called Tamarindo. And I lived there for maybe four or six months until I ran out of the little money that I had. And I had my mom buy me a plane ticket home. Um, came home and tried to be normal again with my family. A year later, I had to up the ante because that's sort of what alcoholics of my type do. You kind of got to go harder every time or else you're not really getting that same that same satisfaction. So I 
So I, about a year later, I bought a one-way plane ticket to Croatia. And uh, I did the same thing. It was a 14-hour flight. I landed in Zagreb without knowing anybody within a 10,000 mile radius. And I had a, a small backpack full of my clothes and my guitar. And I thought I was the coolest guy ever. And I, uh, I worked on organic farms in exchange for room and board. And I drank and drank and drank and drank it until it was time to come home. And the la and I, I, I was still in contact with this, with my, with my girlfriend at the time throughout this whole entire thing. She's fucking nuts for <laughs> sticking around and, and hanging out with me during all this. But uh, she had gotten a DUI the last week that I was in Europe. And I, and I, I came home and she, uh, she was forced to go to AA. And we just kind of made a joke about it and we kept drinking. And a year after that trip, the worst thing I think at the time that could have ever happened to me happened and she ended up getting sober and oh. I did not and she uh, she started working the steps and I just continued living my <clears throat> alcoholic life we made a deal she said like okay look so I'm sober now so if you're drinking you can't be here so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put deadbolts on all the doors of the house <laughs> and you're not gonna be allowed to come back inside the house and you would think that like a committed boyfriend, husband, fiance would think that's a terrible idea. I would think it's a terrible idea now, but when she thought of that, I was so excited. I was like, this is my golden ticket. This is a free pass to go and drink as long as I just don't come home, you know? And um, it was a Thursday and I went to the gym and I came home and all my shit was on the porch. And that was probably the smartest thing that that girl could have ever done. Um, I ended up moving to a shitty little apartment here in Glendora, back where it all started. And I was living behind uh, the bar called Our Place. You guys know Our Place, right? Yeah, I used to call it My Place. I was there every night. I had zero money in my pocket. I would tell my mom I needed gas money to get to, to my job and I'd go spend it at the bar. And, um, and I spent my last drinking year there, almost every night. I had known I was an alcoholic for a good while during the last year of my drinking. I'd known it for a couple years. I didn't even know what the definition of alcoholism was, but I just knew that like nobody drinks like this. Nobody in my social circle needs to do this. Um, I went into uh, work on a Friday, extremely hungover from the Thursday night before that. And I, I think I was still drunk. And um, I fell asleep in a janitor's closet. And I got caught by my boss. Um, and I got fired, of course. And that was my last drink was that Thursday night rolling into Friday morning. And that was on August 18th of 2016. And um, I had finally come to the realization that I couldn't go on the way that I was living. 
but at the same time I couldn't not drink and so at that point in my life my sweat had started to have a strong maple syrup smell and I later learned that it had a strong maple syrup smell because my liver was not processing the sugar in the booze and it was coming out of my pores and when I stopped drinking it got really really bad um, I laid on the fetal position on my couch in my shitty apartment for a couple weeks sweating it out shaking it out and I didn't drink about six months before that happened I was invited to a one-year sobriety birthday party for my then ex-girlfriend and it was at the 502 club in Covina and at the end of those two weeks that I was shaking all the booze out I had remembered where that place was and I didn't really know what went on there I didn't know anything about AA I didn't know anything about God I didn't know anything about anything but I knew the location of of the 502 club and I knew that alcoholics went there for some who knows for some reason you know so I show up to the to the 502 club and uh, I'm terrified out of my mind I see people praying before the meeting the opening prayer I could hardly stand it it gave me shivers up my spine and but I stayed I stayed for the meeting I would look at the ground I really didn't say hi to anybody I would stand in the corner sort of mean mugging uh, trying to look cool and um, really on the inside I was just hoping that somebody would come up and say hi you know I think at my fourth AA meeting I saw a guy across the room and he looked like a familiar face and uh, was my little league baseball coach from when I was like five to seven years old and I later learned that around that time in my life is when he got sober and so I recognized him I went and said hi to him and he offered to be my sponsor his name is Dave P and we started working the steps you know he read me through the uh, he read me through the first 164 of the book and about about six months sober I had started my fourth step talk about your fourth step in your first year and uh, actually I have a kind of a fun little thing that happened to me on my 60 day sobriety day I went into a young person's meeting to get a 60 day chip and I went to a to a normie birthday celebration at a restaurant afterward and I had my 60 day chip in my pocket and somebody ordered a big bowl of ice cream for the whole group to share and so the bowl of ice cream is going around the table and I got my 60 day chip in my pocket and I just think it's a regular bowl of ice cream and I scoop in that ice cream and it's full of rum, right? And I had just worked my second step. I had just worked the second step of AA that day before I got my chip. And I remember reflecting like it says, made a decision, made a decision, made a decision, right? And I have this freaking mouthful of rum and it's, it's time slowed down a little bit. And I remembered it saying, I made a decision. And at that moment, I made a decision to spit the rum out in everybody else's dessert. But I kept my sobriety date and I kept that chip in my pocket, right? About six months into my sobriety, I worked a fourth step, a very thorough fourth step. 
Now, it was slower than I suggest, but it was very thorough. And I remember when I was getting ready to drop my fifth step, sitting across from Dave, I was so scared. I was so scared to tell him all my thoughts and all my feelings and all my wrongdoings and my resentments and the people that I did horrible things to and, and all the dirt. And, uh, and I told him that. I said like, look, I'm, I'm really nervous right now. I'm, I'm sort of freaked out. And he grabbed my hand and we closed our eyes and we did the third step prayer. And I mean, what do you do after your sponsor closes his eyes and does a third step prayer with you? You kinda gotta fucking drop the fifth. I didn't really have a choice, right? He probably knew that. So I dropped my fifth step and um, I felt a big, I felt a big weight lift off my shoulders. Now I can't explain how it works. I can't explain why it works, but I can tell anybody who's wondering that it does work. And, uh, and I know that it has to do with my higher power. I know that there's something bigger than me pulling the strings, you know? About two years into my sobriety, I, um, my sponsor moved away to San Diego, he got a job. And I found another sponsor, his name's Bob. Les is actually my grand sponsor. Les sponsors Bob. And we did the steps again, and we work through them, and we do, um, you know, we do 10 steps, and we talk on the phone, and we stay pretty current, and when I first came into the program, when people would tell me that they would do things like that with a complete stranger, I thought they were nuts. And now, I can't imagine not doing that. I think the newcomers are nuts for not wanting to do it, you know? Um, sponsorship is very important, I think, in, in AA. I, I had such a problem my entire life with anybody who seemed like they knew more than I did, uh, like they had more experience than I did, any sort of authority figures, any sort of father figures, right? And by working the 12 steps of AA, all of those old ideas went away. I think that, um, I think when when I allow God's will to take over my will, it's like, it's like playing a guitar, you know? I'm the left hand and God's strumming the strings, you know? And he's gonna keep strumming no matter what, but if I'm not hitting the notes, it's gonna sound like dog shit. Through AA, I learned how to hit those notes I learned how to stay in constant contact with a higher power, with a sponsor, with my uh, wall of AA friends, as, as they say. So today is a lot different from when I first got sober. When I first got sober, I couldn't hold a job. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't pay my bills. I could not drink. In my third year of sobriety, I was going through a, uh, a custody battle with my ex-girlfriend, her, with, with that girl. We had, uh, I totally skipped over this part. I had another kid with her, right? And so I was going over through a custody battle with, uh, with her over my two-year-old. 
and we were both amicable we were both sober you know and we both learned how to co-parent together and about a year later she called me and asked me to go to lunch and I said yes and this past November I got married to that woman um, my family was reunited I have a nice house that I live at in the upland and it's a nice house because it's a sober house you know my kids went with me to the Cross and Crown Church in Rancho Cucamonga last night on a Thursday because we're starting a new meeting and we went and we were of service so like I said when I first came in I couldn't hold a job I couldn't be in a relationship I was a bad son I was a bad friend I was a bad sibling I was a bad fill in the blank right and today I am a faithful husband I am active in the program of AA I'm learning a lot about the concepts right now um, which a lot of people don't talk about in AA and it's really it's really cool stuff I, I I recommend you know learning about them if you haven't already we have an awesome time in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, we go to state the state line retreat every year except last year because of COVID we go to the SoCal conventions and we go to a good handful of meetings every week and that um, that helps me stay centered and that helps me stay in the fellowship right the meetings are the fellowship the program is in the book and you need God to help you do both. Um, about my professional life, couldn't hold a job back then. Today I run a, a multi-million dollar contracting company and that was through no action of my own. I just did the next indicated step and opened my arms real wide when God said something my way. And uh, that's a good feeling, you know. I have a lot of good I had a lot of good guys now who work who work for me I got 10 full-time employees and um, they're almost all of them are almost all sober you know and they came to me through the program of AA my oldest daughter is 12 years old my youngest daughter is seven and uh, we have a little five-month-old lab puppy and sometimes we'll just go out and sit in the bonfire in my backyard and that might not sound like much but if someone would have told me what my what my life was going to be like five years into being sober when I first went in I never would have believed him ever in my life and it's not about like the material things like those are nice but it's it's about the deep sense of it's about how comfortable I am on the inside, you know? I don't think there's anything that can replace the feeling of being content. Not even happy, just content, right? Because happy is way up. I try and stay sort of, you know, just sort of up. The big wavelengths of the happy and sad, although they come and go, they're not very often now. Um, and it's pretty apparent to me when I'm just able to sit quiet, think about my higher power, 
thing about my life, I cannot deny that AA works. And I cannot deny that everything that I have now has been freely given to me. And all I had to do was show up, you know? So, I'm a little early, Les, but I'm kind of done, man, you know? Okay. I guess I'll, uh, I'll close with this. If I, uh, if I stick around in AA, which I intend to with every soul, every, every part of my soul, right? I have no doubt in my mind that the, the music will keep playing, you know? And so, thanks for letting me share. That's it. Thank you, Joey. All righty. Thank you, Joey, for, uh, for that incredible story. And, uh, oh, we didn't pass the 12 tradition. Uh, yeah, that's good. By the way, Joey, one, one of my first drunks at 19, I had nine Mickey's Big Mouths in 15 minutes because <laughs> they got that big thing. Yeah. And you know it. what? That's probably one of the... I remember that. Yeah. And I wanted to touch on something, you guys. I did my sobriety day was October 17, 2010. I smoked a big fat joint on the 16th. <laughs> so my date got adjusted. On page 411 in the big book, it talks about any chemical compounds. So my problems to my my living problems are in the big book and the 12 and 12 through the steps. So with that, I want to I want to thank our speaker again, Joey. All right, Joey. Okay. And we want to thank everybody here for helping. And I need a volunteer for the promises to pray us out with the Lord's prayer, or with the Lord's prayer. Stephanie alcoholic Stephanie. if we are painstaking about this phase of our development we will be amazed before we are halfway through we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace no matter how far down the scale we have gone we will see our how our experience can benefit others that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think, not. we think not. They are being fulfilled among us. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Now, after a moment of silence for the alcoholic that still suffers in and out of these rooms and the innocent children caught in the crossfires, please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Keep coming back. Work. Work. For 10 to 15 minutes, and then uh, maybe pick a topic and um, start off the sharing. We'll make it a round robin, and so let's all give a warm welcome to Rudy F. Hi, my name is Rudy. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you, Gary and Fernando. I'll put the timer on right now. That way. Okay. I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Um, I'm grateful to, to know that I have re and believe that I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I'm not cured of alcoholism. book tells me that. But it also says... And I read out of the book, so that way nobody thinks I'm making it up. It says, if he says yes, then his attention should be drawn to you as a person who has recovered. And that's why I identify as a recovered alcoholic. And um, a lot of people want to argue about that, but it's in the book. I recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And... Um, the topic for today, uh, this was a topic at another meeting a couple of days ago, which was um, Step 12, Working with Others, Chapter 7, tells me that practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. And chapter seven, is all about it's all step 12 right there it, it shows us and teaches us how to go about working with another alcoholic you know um this isn't my first time around but the, um this time around when i came back i came back defeated willing and i i, I got back into the steps and i reconnected with my higher power because I did the steps before, and just like Jim's story, I failed to enlarge upon my spiritual life, and what happened was I was out for run riot, and before I knew it, I'm back out there again. And so what I do today is I stay connected to my higher power. I continue working 10, 11, and 12 to the best of my ability. When I came back in 2020, my sobriety date is May 14, 2020. Um, I went through the process of the steps within a month and it seems like God put me back where I left off 
which was I was at a sober living at the time and a new guy came up to me and, and we started talking just like chapter seven tells me engage in general conversation and so that's what I did and I wasn't ashamed of my relapse I wasn't embarrassed or afraid to share that because the book tells me to get out of that fear there's a, there's a solution in chapter five so what I what I did was I shared my story and how I felt to enlarge upon my spiritual life and the guy asked me if I could help him with the steps. I didn't hesitate because I was already on chapter seven at the time. So it seems like God put the first one in front of me to get me passionate again about working with others and doing 10, 11, and 12 because I heard a, 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 another member of Alcoholics Anonymous share a few weeks ago at a meeting and people say, oh, I worked all 12 steps, I did all 12 steps. And then he asked, did you work with other alcoholics? Did you take someone through the steps? And they, they tell him, no. Well, then you just worked 11 steps. You didn't work all 12 steps. And that, 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 made, a, uh, that made a point, you know, like, there's, there's a lot of us that we do the steps, but we don't do step 12. And for me, that's very important today. So after I worked with that guy, then I start. I continued working with others. I continue to this day working with others. Um, I have two guys in the work right now, and one guy I travel every Sunday, almost every Sunday, from Covina to the San Fernando Valley, a little bit over an hour away, to do step work with this guy. I met him on day one. He had one day, and. If I didn't engage in general conversation, just like chapter seven tells me and, and put myself out there to this guy, then I wouldn't be working with somebody right now. So I have to get out of self and, and carry this message. That That's my primary purpose today because they're helping me stay sober. The people that I work with, that I help with the steps, they help me. But when I'm taking them through the book, I'm taking myself through the book as well. God's taking me and this person and then when i get to hear another person's fifth step and they're trusting me with some information and when you hear them tell you i've never told anybody this you're the only person i've ever told this to it gives me chills and it gets me it gives me a natural high that i've never felt with any alcohol any 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 substance and to me that's like the best feeling in the world you know being out there, out there on the streets, homeless, and, and just walking and wandering around everywhere to being useful and productive, a productive member of society, not just having a job and having a place to live, but just being able to carry a message of hope. Someone helped me, and so for me, it's I freely give what was so freely given to me. You know, How can I keep what I have if I don't give it away? And so for me, the topic is step 12. Like what, what has your experience with it, with it been? Because also another thing that, that, I, that I've learned is in, in chapter two. And there's a solution. And um, when, I, when I was taught this, it's like, this is the... the what do you call it? This is the qualifications, or if you want to, if you want to call it, for working with another person, a sponsor, right? It says, but the ex-problem drinker who has found the solution, which is doing a thorough fourth and fifth step, was properly armed with the facts about himself that I'm selfish, self-seeking, self-centered, 
all these things, I learned these things in doing a fourth tempest that can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. That the man who is making the approach, so I have to make the approach to the newcomers. I can't just sit and wait for them to come to me because I'm not this guru. I don't, I don't know it all. I don't have all the answers, but I do know the answers are here in this book. And doing a fourth and fifth step, and it, it's up to the person, and, and and I'm not God. All I'm doing is being that instrument. That's it. And God uses both of us because it's one alcoholic working with another. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. That the man who is making the approach has had the same difficulty. I couldn't control and enjoy my drinking anymore. Life was. I was becoming a prey to misery. You know, I, I couldn't control my, my living situations. That he obviously knows what he's talking about, that his old department shot at the new prospect, that he is a man with the real answer, that he has no attitude of holier than thou, nothing whatever except the sincere desire to be helpful. That's it. It's altruistic. I don't go to the valley with the gas prices this high and expect my sponsee to give me gas money. I don't do that. I do that because I'm ensuring my immunity from drinking today. And, and doing other substances. That there are no fees to pay, no access to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These are the conditions we have found most effective. After such an approach, many take up their beds and walk again. And so today, you know, besides continuing to make amends, you know, my mom, she's in the hospital. She went to the hospital on Monday. She's going on dialysis today. You know, all I can do is pray for her, stay connected to God, and continue working with others. You know, because my primary purpose is to stay sober, right, and help other alcoholics, and to carry the message. So I don't go into a meeting because I have step 10. This is just a side note. I have step 10. I discuss when my character defects crop up immediately with someone. I don't carry them into the meeting and throw up on the meeting so that you guys can feel bad for me, feel sorry for me. I pray, I ask God to help me with those character defects, and I deal with them. I, I believe it's in Fred's story, it talks about that quite as important was a discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. And so today I try to practice that in all my affairs, knowing that if I apply spiritual principles to whatever's going on, you know, the IRS, put a levy on, on, on my on my bank account. I was literally broke. These things happen, they're part of life. I never had these problems before. The only financial problem I had was getting from point A to point B and trying to steal stuff from Walmart to go get some stuff to stay stay on that other pink cloud. And today I'm on this so-called pink cloud. I'm on fire for AA. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, but I also love the program of action, which is in the book which is outlined here, there's clear-cut directions. And so for me, helping another alcoholic is not having him call me on a daily basis, but let's meet up, let's get into the work, let's get you through this fourth step so that you can do this fifth step and so that you can make amends to your family, so that you can get back to your family that, 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 that was taken away by the drugs and alcohol. And so for me, that's where it's at today. I, I take action, I get into action. You know, if, if I have a, a sponsee or, or, you know, someone I'm working with in the steps that's all, already almost to 10 and 11, I go out to other meetings and I, I try to find somebody else to work with, whether it's just reading the doctor's opinion with them, 
hey, at least I, I, I did something, right? I don't go looking for somebody. I'm going to get them throughout 12. That's up to him. That's up to the individual. But I put myself out there because I know that somebody put themselves out there for me and carried this message to me. And today I sit here, you know, as long as I stay connected, doing my 10 step, doing step 11, prayer meditation, which I don't do perfectly, but I try my best to talk to God and to listen to God. And I do step 12, whether it's, you know, just talking to somebody during the meeting, during the break or after the meeting, you know, carrying the message that there's hope, the solution is outlined in the book. There's clear-cut directions. Because a lot of times we hear, you know, just do 90 and 90 or give us a year and we'll gladly refund your misery. Well, the book tells me that not all of us can make it even past a few days or even a month. We'll be back out there because we're restless, irritable, and discontent. And so I try to carry this message to those that are of the hopeless variety. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, there's a lot of us dying out there. And so I lost a friend. I'll share this. A friend, um, like, five months ago? Yeah, five months ago. He went back out, and he he od And so... It pains me, you know, it pains me to to know that there's a lot of us dying, dying from alcoholism. We put other things in our in our system alcoholically. But at the end of the day we suffer from alcoholism and so I just I just wanna carry that message of hope that there is a solution and it's all this book. And I'm gonna share this real quick. And again the the topic is working with others, you know. It says um, in chapter two, and excuse me, I'm a little bit nervous right here. I don't know you guys that well, so kind of nervous. But um, so it says on page 25, there's a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation. And so that's what I try to share with, with newcomers. You know, when I talk to them, it's like, we're beyond human aid. God could and would if we were sought. You know what I mean? And so sharing that and being able to have the knowledge and, and whatever I I have obtained, you know, by learning and, and reading the book and taking others to the steps helps me. It helps me to get new people in the work because they see that, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. He used to be a tweaker, he used to be a bum, and now he's over here on fire for the program. And so having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message. Try. And that's all I can do today is just try to carry this message. So if you're new and you're struggling and if you haven't worked the steps, reach out to somebody. Reach out to somebody that can help you work the steps. You know, if you're struggling and you feel disconnected, maybe get out of self and try to reach out to a newcomer and take them to the steps. Because by taking them to the steps, you're also taking yourself to the steps again. And so, yeah, I'm kind of nervous, so I'll let it go at that. But my name is Rudy, and I'm a grateful alcoholic. Thank you. And I guess I'll call him Gary.
Okay, well, thank you, Rudy. That was a great job. Uh, thank you for coming and uh, kicking us off. And uh, that's a great topic. And I'm sorry to hear about your mom, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I got to help my, my folks out in sobriety. And I think that's one of the gifts, you know. You get to be part of their, of their solution rather than just another one of their problems. Um, and I'm sure she's really grateful that you're there and able to help her. And, you know, she doesn't have to worry about you if, you stay, if you're sober, you know. Um, so, you know, that's awesome. Cause that, that's just what normal people do. You know, you know, I mean, like I wanted a medal, you know, because I was helping my, my mom and dad out, you know, and, but uh, that's just what normal people do is, uh, help, you know, be there to take care of the family and not be part of the problem. Um, that's a great topic. Uh, I, I was lucky. I got sober in Orange County. And uh, the meeting, I, the meetings that I was going to, I got hooked up with a guy that was uh, really involved in service. He was really involved in H&I, hospitals and institutions. He was also a GSR, general service rep. And he was also on the uh, intergroup board. He worked, he was a publisher or worked on the, uh, he was one of the editors for the newsletter for the Santa Ana Central Office uh, monthly newsletter this guy was really 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 involved in AA and he just kind of drugged me around you know and I didn't know at the time it was any different you know I didn't know I thought that's what you do you know um, and uh, so I got introduced to a lot of those service entities of AA and he said at one time at one point that's what his job was as a sponsor he says it was his responsibility as a sponsor to uh, introduce uh, his sponsees to AA, and he said the only way that he knew how to do that was if he was uh, participating in it himself, you know. Uh, so I got drug around at a really early age, you know, doing H&I panels and um, uh, even GSR. I think I had two years, and he suggested one of the meetings was uh, needed a GSR, and he had a really sneaky way. He wasn't a salesman. He was a... Uh, computer programmer but god he was so sneaky they needed a gsr and he would he said man you'd be really good at that and so i'm thinking you know well okay i'm going to be a good gsr you know but later i heard him say that exact same thing to so many other people like you know one of the meetings they needed a treasurer and he he nudged the guy and he goes man you'd be really good at that you ought to take that commitment you know uh, so that was his uh, sneaky way a sneaky way, I guess. I don't know. I did the same thing to my sponsee, you know. But um, I, I had some really, it is part of the, the triangle, you know. They do, they talk about the three legs, the three legacy of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, you've got uh, recovery is one of them, service and unity, you know. And uh, Bill was big uh, about um you know, saying you needed all three parts of the triangle. And um, I, I, I think the reason, I mean, I got sober in 96, and I really think the main reason that I've been able to stay sober uh, that whole time is because that guy did drag me around and introduced me to a lot of that service stuff. Because um, I, I had some life-changing experiences doing that. 
not just doing H and I, a little bit of doing H and I, but even in general service, um, we did. We went to a meeting that was at a homeless shelter, uh, part of general service committee, and we thought we thought we were going there to straighten the meeting out, you know. But it was at a homeless shelter in San, downtown Santa Ana. Um, which we weren't aware of when we were going down there to straighten the meeting out. And, um, you know, that turned into a life changing experience for me, you know, um, and that's happened so many times, you know, uh, going on H and I panels, um, and stuff like that. Sponsees. I got, I had one, I got one sponsee that's been sober, I think, uh, 18, 19 years. And he's just, he's relocated to Texas, but, uh, he, he's helped more people than I ever did. I mean, he, he probably helped more people, you know, 20, 20, 30, maybe a hundred times more people than me, you know? Um, but I, you know, I just helped him, but then he turned around and was able to help a lot of people. So that's kind of how it works, you know, is, uh, and, and at one time I was kind of getting burned out. I was doing a lot of H and I stuff and, uh, GSR stuff and the heat kind of died down. I had a great job in telecommunications. I was working in Irvine. I'd gotten the heat off. I got, I paid off the IRS. I got, I paid off all the credit cards. Um, I had money in the bank. I was absolutely stunned how fast you can save money when you don't spend it. And, um, you know, I started thinking maybe I don't need to do all that AA stuff. And I kind of, I kind of stopped, I kind of stopped, you know, and I ran into my sponsor, um, and he mentioned that to me. He goes, well, I didn't see it at H and I, uh, I didn't see it at GSR and uh, I didn't see it at this meeting. And he just kind of made the comment, you're just kind of quitting slowly, aren't you? And, um, and then he said, you know, if I'd have done that, maybe I wouldn't have been here to help you when you came in. You know, and that's all he said. But I, I, I realize that's that, that that is the way it is. If I don't compete, if I don't keep doing what 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 I'm doing and uh, doing what they did when I first got here, then uh, there won't be any people to do it. You know, who's going to help the next person? So uh, anyway, thank you again, Rudy, for coming and sharing. And it's a great topic. And I am going to pick. Uh, how about Teresa? Lisa, alcoholic. Thank you so much, Rudy. I really appreciate it. Um, it's good to, to also to have sometimes somebody read directly from the book too. It just sort of focuses your mind on on what the person's talking about. Uh, and I know very well. I, I very much related to the feeling of it's it's a real honor when somebody is saying to you, "I'm going to say something to you I've never said to someone else." You know. Um, you know, it's funny, I think we all, or we, I know when I came to the program, I, I found it hard to ask for help. Like I have heard many a person say in the meeting, it's, it's, and then you feel, oh my gosh, I can't tell somebody I, why should I call somebody up to tell them about my issues or whatever? And what I often say to somebody now, if, if I have a sponsee or just a buddy in the program or for that matter, who's not in the program is worried, going through a difficult time and doesn't want to reach out. As I say, how do you feel when people reach out to you? Don't you usually feel pretty, pretty honored? And I find, you know, honestly, 90% of people say, yeah, yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, it's, 
it blows me away. The, the, before I talk about my doing the 12 step, I, I, I have to say the effect of people doing 12 steps on me. And that continues to this day. I've been sober for, for quite a number of years, but it, it, it doesn't really matter. You know, for example, um, some of the people in this meeting, like my husband and I, a few years ago, ended up in a meeting in Glendora. We don't live near Glendora. We were, we're in the Monrovia area, never been out there, didn't even really know that neighborhood existed, that there was a thing called Glendora. <laughs> we went to this meeting, and it was too jammed to go in. It was this incredibly crowded uh, speaker meeting in Covina, but we really, really wanted a meeting. So, you know, just looked up the app. Okay, here's something closer. Let's just follow it. We, we show up at this meeting, um, don't know anybody. Most of the people seem to know each other. And you know how that can be, especially when you're part of a couple. Some, you know, sometimes people approach you when you're solo, but when you're a couple, a lot of times we've gone to meetings and, and people are, you know, semi-friendly or, or not particularly friendly. But people were very friendly, like right off. You know, Rochelle, for example, was somebody who turned right around at the break. Hi, my name's Rochelle. What's your guy's name? You know, uh, this guy named Luke, um, Gary, various people were, were friendly and warm right from the get-go. And so we ended up going back to that meeting, and it became a meeting we went to regularly, despite the fact that it was a, kind of a drive, you know. And that's part of 12-step work. Like when you were mentioning reaching out to your a guy who turned into your sponsee. But, you know, we forget. Because you, you go to meetings, and it's social, and it's fun to see your friends. I'm guilty of that myself. You know, oh, gosh, I want to talk to so-and-so at the break. But here's this person sitting over here, and you don't know their deal. You don't know if they're new, or maybe they're just new to the area, or whatever it might be. But it's always a little nerve-wracking to walk into a meeting, especially by yourself, you know. So I always appreciate it when people are friendly, and I try to do the same. Um, when I think of it, you know, sometimes I don't always think of it. But usually I, I do make a point when I see somebody at a meeting that I haven't seen before, just to go over and say, hi, you know, I, I haven't seen you here before that kind of thing. Um, and the first time I did a fifth step with my first sponsor, I, I, I just was blown away by the amount of time she took with me. And I mean, it took all day. And she never said a word about it being a problem. I, I kept expecting she'd interrupt. <laughs> In fact, a few times I said, you know, we can do this. We can finish up some other day. She said, no, 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 clear my day. Don't worry, you know. And it was wonderful. I, the amount of, of time people spend. Years later, um, I did a, a, another, I got another sponsor and we went through the steps again. At the time I was about 18 years sober and I felt like my emotional sobriety wasn't needed some help. And this man who I asked would come to my office after work. He'd drive to me because he was retired and had more of a free schedule. So, you know, he'd get in his car, which is a hassle, drive over to where I was, which was a hassle, sit with me once or twice a week for weeks upon weeks upon weeks upon weeks. And it's just that, that giving of your own time. I found that in terms of sponsoring, that people, it comes and goes, and it seems to come and go in, in, in uh, waves, you know? Like right now, I have two sponsees and a third person who's approached me. But sometimes I've gone for a few years, and then I try not to get caught up in my ego. Like, oh, nobody wants what I have. You know, how come nobody's asking me? I mean, it just seems to, it just seems to go in waves. 
Um, but there is a lot of times where AA teaches you not to be selfish. You know, I, I saw one of my sponsees on Monday night and she said, I really would like to talk to you. Can I come over to your house Sunday morning? Well, Sunday's not a great day for me because I'm meeting up with my sister later in the day. It's her sobriety birthday, her actual birthday that day. And so we're meeting up to, to have lunch and see a performance. And I haven't seen her in a few weeks. Her mother-in-law just died. So I really, you know, it's not, I don't want for my sponsee to come over to be honest, but it was, but it was, it was like, not me. It's not my type of personality. It was more like the training. I just instantly said, Oh, sure. I said, it'd have to be early. You know, if you don't mind coming on over, we'll have coffee, you know? Um, and oh well, you know, and I know when she gets in her car to leave, I don't know how she'll feel, but I know I'll feel better. It's true. I do always feel better. And then I, I joke about this, but it's also kind of serious. Uh, once I, a I asked a sponsee, she was having all kinds of trouble with the God word. Oh, this is BS. It says it's not a religious program. You guys are always talking about God. But I said, well, why don't you read the chapter on the, the agnostics, you know, and, and you and I will talk about it. I failed to remind myself of that chapter, okay? So I show up. I had not bothered to reread it. I had read it God knows how long ago. And she sits and says to me, this chapter is all about basically how you're going to end up believing in God. It's, it's, it's not about agnostics at all. I mean, I had to come clean. I'm like, oh, my God, I am so sorry. Let's you and me read it right now again and go through it and talk about it, which we did. But that taught me a lesson. And so I find when I'm working with people, it gets, it makes me reread the book more carefully. If I'm asking them to do work, I better do the work, you know? So yeah, this, this program really helps a lot and, and everybody finds their way. You know, I'm not the best with panels, for example. Um, maybe because when I first came to AAA, I was a teacher and I, uh, I just panels, especially panels with kind of bored uh, teenage people who didn't want if you listening to you reminded me a little too much of, of my job at the time. So, you know, I don't do those as much, but I do sponsor and I do go to meetings a lot and I do try to be a friendly person. So I think it's also okay sometimes to kind of find your ground and see what you're going to do. I just visited an old sponsee of mine. She's, she's living in Palm Springs and she's got a lot of time now and she was wonderful with GSR work and service work. She just thrived on that and did a great job. But she found working with sponsees more difficult. So, you know, we, we, we give back in whatever way we can. Coming to this meeting is part of giving back. Um, I really appreciate people like Gary that are running it, you know, and opening it up, whether there's two people here or se seven people here, you never know. So thanks for letting me share. And let me see, let me grab my readers here so I can see people's names. Let's see. How about, is that Cherise? I said your name correctly. I did, Cherise Alcoholic. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm understanding that the topic is sponsorship or taking people through the book. Um, step 12. Step 12, gotcha. Okay, um, I, I apologize. At the beginning of the meeting, I had to take a call. I was not expecting my, my sponsor postponed, and then the next thing you know, she did end up calling. Um, so I had to take the call. Um, I was doing step work. Um, I've done step work before, um, and um, 
I was in a relationship for a uh, majority of my sobriety with another alcoholic. It did, it ended and um, I was lost and confused. So I, ha- I knew exactly what I had to do. And I called my sponsor and I said, I need to go through my steps again. So that's what I'm doing. And um, in the interim, all my sponsees decided that they needed to go through their steps. So I, I'm in the book lately almost every day. Um, but just as Teresa shared, I, I remember giving an assignment to a newcomer and I don't remember what I read in the chapter. So she's asking me questions I don't have answers to. So I have to get back in the book myself. And, and the beauty of it is, is every time I work with somebody new, something new is revealed about me. And like a character defect or anything. And I immediately get to working on that character defect because I want to feel closer to God. I want to feel closer to my higher power. Um, I have a sponsee who, when I met her, did not believe in God. And when she heard God, wanted to leave. And that was me when I first came in because I thought you guys were a cult. And um, I was waiting for you guys to tell me, and then you guys would hand the basket around. And I was like, it is definitely a cult. And um, it wasn't until I heard somebody say, listen, I just want you to listen to the things I'm thinking when I'm doing the things that I'm doing. Don't listen to the things that I'm doing, just the things that I'm thinking when I'm doing that. If you can relate to that, you might be an alcoholic and you might just wanna get somebody to take you through that book and you might wanna just find somebody to help you work your 12 steps. And um, that was the first time I'd laughed in a very long time because I had pending cases, I had three felonies, couple of DUIs and probation forever and uh, jail sentence and all kinds of stuff going on. And um, it wasn't until, you know, I, I sat down and I went through the book and I got to, to see myself. And I got to learn that um, in order for me to feel close to my higher power, I need to be genuinely myself. And I can't be genuinely myself until I let go of all of the biggest thing for me that comes out is people pleasing and what you think of me and how important it is to me to the point where I'm willing to drink myself to death and harm others. And so, um, I get to be genuinely me today. Um, and I get to be at peace with that and know that that is enough. And it isn't, it wasn't until I worked my stuff that I got there. And I get to share that with other sponsees, the sponsee that didn't believe in God when she first got here now has, has a power, has a faith in a power higher, you know, greater than herself and actually gets up and prays to it. And then asks me when, when I I'm talking to her, she's like, but I didn't hear anything about God today. And that blows my mind. And she's only halfway through the process. She's only, she's on, um, she's on step five right now. And, and it just blows my mind. I get to do a fifth step with her on Sunday. And, and it, it's that, that feeling that you get walking somebody through the steps and kind of getting this thing and you, you get to kind of relive the peace that you felt, um, when you first go through your steps, you know, and, and knowing that this is making a difference in their life and knowing that they're, they're, you know, they have one more day under their belt because they're doing this thing. 
it, it just makes you feel so good. Like that, that feeling that I was looking for in a bottle, you know? Um, I know that if I stop working with others, for me, I'm going to drink. I'm going to drink because I'm going to forget where, from where I came from. Um, but that's me. Um, that's all I really have to share. Do I just call on the next person? Okie dokie. How about Aaron? Thanks, Sharice. I had a feeling it was going to be me. <laughs> I'm Aaron. Um, I'm an alcoholic. Um, I will have six months on the 24th of this month. Um, <laughs> I love listening to Sharice talk and Rudy. Um, I met both of them on my very first um, AA meeting. I was two days sober. So if I hadn't met them, it still makes me emotional <laughs> because um, I don't know that I'd be here. I don't know that I would have kept going. Um, I don't go to a lot of meetings right now. Um, I'm on my 10th step. working on my amends. Um, my very first amends of on my, that I'm still working on is going to be a pretty long process with my mom. And so um, when Rudy is talking about his mom, you know, it kind of made me think about it. Um, I haven't even actually made amends with my mom yet. I'm working on our whole entire relationship and just kind of um, helping her to understand, I guess. I'm kind of working through uh, my resentment still with her. She didn't understand what I was going through. She doesn't understand depression. She doesn't understand alcoholism. And she finally said that. She said, you know, I just didn't understand. And that was something that I've been waiting for. I mean, it's almost like she's never said sorry or any kind of apology for anything in my life, but just to know that she just didn't understand. So that lifted a whole bunch for me. So um, I haven't taken anybody through the steps yet. I started to take one person even a few months ago when I was pretty new and it didn't work out because um, that person wanted to kind of do it their own way. And I was taught, you know, by the book and I wanted to do it that way. And that person didn't want to do it that way. And it turned out to be not a very um, healthy situation for me. So I had to stop that. Um, but as far as working with others now, I, you know, I have people wanting what I have. So I see people that aren't even necessarily alcoholics that just see changes in me. Um, and when I start opening up about my life, you know, they'll say, well, why are you doing this now? Or how come, geez, what are you doing? You know, you just seem so happy and all this. And I say, well, I just start off saying I'm an alcoholic. Um, and then I start listing off all these things I'm doing. And, and it's so funny when you do that. Hey, me too. You know, so many people. The second you open up about it, they open up too, and that just opens the door. And so I'm just, I do that. I feel like that's working with others a little, you know, I'm starting to, um, just opening myself up. So I do um, something that Rudy was saying. I can't even remember what it was now, but it already helped me with something I was going through today because I was building up a resentment about something. And something that he said, and it's, I already, it's gone now. I mean, you know, I thought it was all in myself, and it's, I didn't need whatever it was. I don't even remember what it was. But anyway, that's all I have. Um, thanks for inviting me to this meeting, Sharice. And um, I don't know if there's time for anybody else or not. 
Um, I guess whoever else. I'm on my phone, so it's kind of hard to see. So if there's anybody else that wants to talk, I guess. Well, Andy is right below you, so how about Andy? Well, uh, thank you for nominating me, Jerry. You're good at you're good at that. <laughs> I'm an alcoholic. My name's Andy. And you know, but what's said so far, you know, I know I'm in the right place. I know I'm in the right room, and and I'm just about like everybody else. Everybody's talking about having a little dry, a little little flat spells, dry spells, whatever. I've been on one for a little while now. And, just because you've been sober for, you know, what is it, 12,186 days, doesn't make me immune from being human. You know, and I, it's gotten bad. It's starting, it's, it's, it's getting, I'm starting to head towards the other side now. You know, I, uh, I sat down with lunch, at, at dinner with a, with a, with a man that I respect, and I asked him to, you know, as we talked about, you know, me, him being, coming my new, my new sponsor. You know, it's, it's not about you know, going through all this. It's not necessarily about me. He said, you know, it's not about, you know, taking you through Alice Dad's and, you know, call me every day. So he said, what do you want from me? I told him, what I need now, what I feel like, what I would like, is I need someone who I can be current with and accountable to. Because, you know, my sponsor now, uh, sponsor, you know, I asked a man to be my temporary sponsor 33 years ago. And, you know, and we talked back and forth and, he said, oh, I'm devastated I was looking for somebody. I said, well, Mike, after 33 years of temporary sponsorship, I think I need to grow up. But, you know, he asked me what I wanted. I said that. And he said, oh, okay, we can do that. But um, uh, well, I just come from school right now. So, but working and working with others, you know, I've, I've, I've a lot of you. I've had good luck and bad luck. I, Teresa, I fully understand. I mean, I was—I didn't sponsor anybody for years, and I was beating myself up for years, like, going, what's wrong with me? Why doesn't anybody? And then it kind of dawned on me, or it hit me. I had an epiphany that we have in meetings sometimes. And, you know, maybe that's not what I'm supposed to do. There are people in Alcoholics Anonymous that make great sponsors. I know I know someone who's sponsored. He's, take, he's taken hundreds of people through the steps. He, he, has do, he, he has dozens of people he's currently sponsoring right now. I know a couple people like that. But there's other things. Gary mentioned a few. There's H and I. I like I like H and I. Until this COVID thing hit, I did a panel for close to 30 years. You know, and there are people. I tried general service, and I was a substitute once to go in. I'm sorry, that's not for me. I could not stand it. But that's okay. There are people. That, I love making coffee. I made a lot of coffee when I was new because I've, I've told you all before. I shook so much the old timers thought it was better for me to make it than drink it. But there's many, many things to do to be of service in Alcoholics Anonymous. And this was the same topic that was on my meeting last night. And I'll say now what is the first thing, is what I said last night. You people of Alcoholics Anonymous made me comfortable in my first meeting. And it's today it's my duty, but when the meeting started up, to make, other, make the other new person feel comfortable. That's our whole thing. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I fell in love with it at my first meeting. The love affair has never ended. And, you know, yeah, it is weird. I've gone to new meetings, too, and I've had some places people have been friendly, other people. I went to a meeting once in Orange County, and the only person that came up to me and shook my hand was somebody who also was out of town. That was weird. And, yeah, Teresa, I remember when you came to that Sunday meeting, the Sunday, the Promises meeting, and 
Yeah, we're, we we uh, back. We were real friendly back then. I mean, you know, other people we've had experiences at meeting with people. They fell in love. We had a student, one person you know, come to Alcoholics Anonymous for a psychology class. She brought the cookies to the meeting because she liked us so much. That's the effect we of Alcoholics Anonymous have on on people. If we're truly into it, that's what happens. And uh, thank you for letting me share. And I'll pass it on. Let me see. Get my Get up here and, um, uh, Rochelle. Hi, everyone. I'm Rochelle, an alcoholic. And it sure feels good to be in a meeting with all of my people that, uh, not only just my people, people, but the people that were with me on day one, right? So, uh, uh, <coughs> for those of you that don't know, I had long-term sobriety at one time and then I went back out. But anyway, when I came back in this time, which now is four and a half years sober now, um, and I just showed up scared. Every emotion that, that I had, I was, I was short-circuiting. So even though I was scared and mad and numb and lo- and alone, I just felt like a cat on a hot tin roof, you know? Like, don't touch me, but please love me. Don't look at me, but please help me, right? Just like, I just can't explain it more than that. And that's how the beginning was for me. And so when, when I, with that type of energy of, don't touch me, but help me. Don't look at me, but help me. And get away from me, but help me. <laughs> um, and then also my pride and ego and all of these things that I didn't know that that was running the show. Because uh, I didn't want you to know I felt all those things. In fact, I couldn't even articulate them because I didn't know what I didn't know, right? I just know what I, I the only thing I knew for sure is I knew what I didn't want anymore. And I knew there was a better way. Even if I used to have it, I knew it meant nothing. The past was completely didn't matter. I needed help right now. And I needed, and the answer was AA. But I didn't know anybody in AA anymore. Because I quit going to meetings and stuff. And moved on with my life. As life turned left, it turned right, went up, went down, sideways, and in circles. I ended up starting drinking again. Um, But all that to say... Those people in the beginning, I was like their shadow, only they didn't know I was their shadow, right? I just sort of secretly clung on without trying to be, without trying to appear like a cling on. <laughs> it was just sort of, I, I mean, I'm sure it, you guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, I can't be the only one who's kind of like showed up to AA like that, right? So, I mean, because after all, I'm not stupid and, and all of that. I just know I needed help and I know uh, whatever it is you were doing was working and I knew for sure my way wasn't working anymore. And I had too many problems that were overwhelming. I, and um, not that they could really help me with all those other problems, but if I could just begin to think straight, then maybe I'll feel better. And then maybe I could design a better life, make better choices, which be, which really had to do with, Fixing all the mistakes I made, 
uh, staying too long, not staying long enough, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, just coulda, woulda, shoulda type stuff. Oh, well, had I only. And if, you know, and I mean, I went, so A, so AA was helpful. The people were helpful. Uh, therapy was helpful. And then, um, but here I am now when I fast forward to where I am today, a lot has changed, but yet nothing has changed. Um, it's not like I shed some old person and now I'm this other, like, like flamingo or something. Although I feel real pretty like that. Like, so like happy on the inside, right? I'm not even talking about my outside. I'm talking about how I feel on the inside. Uh, but, <coughs> and, and, and that, and yes, a lot of that stuff did get cleaned up slowly, but surely. And, um, and it's really what's happening to me in sobriety through the help of the program and, and those in it, which is the program, the people is becoming the person that I was always meant to be. Because the willingness to look at my fears and my ego and my pride and really when I, in the power in looking at that is it really is like child's play. You're like, oh my God, I couldn't believe why I feel like such a big, tough green puff when all I had to be is just a soft kitten, uh, go meow, 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 drink some like little kitty milk and then I get all this help and I get all this love and that's kind of what I just needed all along, you know, the isolation and the big, tough, erect spine just didn't work for me anymore. I was like in my own way, you know, oh, by the way, I want to, I forgot to say thank you, Rudy, because, you know, he talked about character defects and stuff. And, you know, the steps talk about character defects. The book calls them a shortcoming. And for me now, where I am now, my sobriety, it's just getting in my own way. And I still do it. And I do it all the time. But only now I see it more like child play, like, oh, there you go again. And, there, and uh, you don't have to do it like that unless you just want to continue to suffer or feel really, like, heavy. So I wake up feeling light, and I started paying attention. Like, why is that? Why do I wake up feeling light? And why, and why do I sometimes feel heavy? And so for me, the answer today is, I mean, because sometimes the answers change as, as I progress. But, but I wake up, and I feel light when I'm in my heart. I feel heavy when I'm in my head. I don't even know if that makes sense. So when I'm trying to sort of rely on my higher power, not trying to run every, or I do try to run my own show. I just try not to micromanage every little thing, right? So I just, so I do my sobriety one day at a time. I do my obligations and the things I need to take care of. This is what I'm doing this moment. I'm washing sheets that I make the bed. I'm lucky I can multitask and put my makeup on in between. You know what I mean? So... I don't even know what I'm talking about there with all that. I'm just trying to talk about what my life's like today. And all these little routine, everyday, taking care of oneself. I love it. Like, I get so excited to sleep in clean sheets. And I have a washing machine to put them in. And before that, when I was, like, down and out and kind of living in a garage, you could say, I would put quarters in that laundry machine. And I would think, thank you, God, I have a quarter to do my laundry. Because I still like sleeping in clean sheets. just took a little different kind of work to get there. But um, life has changed. And then um, 
I, I don't really view myself as the good sponsor per se, but who am I to say if I'm good or bad? I do know that people, I have helped others. Once in a while, someone calls me. Um, I may or may not have the answers. I have no clue. Um, I, but I am appreciative when I call somebody, and which is what I try to do in return, as I try to be straight with them in a loving way because I got the whole world who will either bullshit me, um, of course, not understand what I'm going through, could care less what I'm going through, um, or don't want to offend you, right? Because if it's polite society, but when you're but in addiction and alcoholism is about, you're about ready to lose your life because this disease is no joke and you will go insane. The end of my drinking, I literally felt I was teetering like, what the hell is wrong? What is wrong? I couldn't think my way out of this problem. It was a problem much bigger than myself. And that's when I knew I was in big trouble. Like, what? Whoa. But um, I do really, I was going to say appreciate. But it's, it's not the right word. It's more like love. I love the connections that I've made in this program. And I love the feedback that I get when the people that have known me from day one now to day now and just say they can see the change, right? I mean, I only I know how I feel on the inside. I just try to express it, uh, how, how I am on the outside, so I can uh, bring some, share the, from hope, from being hopeless to being hopeful and helpful, to being despair to being joyful, because that's the point of getting sober. And I didn't get there alone. I mean, and like what a magic program this is to, to, to not only get the help, but to recognize how it all came about. Like this whole organization is even bigger than us. Like it's bigger than its parts. You know, I'm, I just, I guess what I'm saying is I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude and I'm so grateful that I'm sober. And I guess I'll just stop there. Let's see who wants to talk. How about, is my friend Miss, I don't see Missy. Does she feel like talking? Is she still here? I'm right here. And this has been the best meeting of my last four weeks, including all of my new corporate meetings. So thank you. I appreciate it very much. Okay, well, you're welcome. Is it? Do you want to keep talking, or do you want to pick on someone else to share? Someone else can share. That's all I've got for right now. Okay, um, how about um, Fernando? Thank you, Rochelle, Rudy, and Gary. Man, you know, when I was incarcerated, Rudy, uh, they used to be the, the guys that would pick up weights, the heavy duties, and then the, the lighter weights. The guys in the group, and it was a smaller group, and then the guys didn't want to work. That was a big group. Didn't want to, you know, they just wanted to. And this is heavyweight today. Thank you so much. You're taking me back that uh, you can actually, you can actually talk right out of the book just by quoting it, you know. Bam, 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 bam. And uh, I thank you for driving the message home. Because right here, I looked at uh, a step two you mentioned on page 57. It says, that even so has God restored us all to our right minds. 
God has restored us all to our right minds. And then it goes on to say, but he has come to all who honestly sought him. And when we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to us. And the way he disclosed himself to us was the fact is, is that life got easier. So strange, you know, like you mentioned, the IRS, uh, district attorney, you know, bill collectors, vanishing cars. You know, I had three vanishing cars before I came to AA. You know, they just, I seemed to clean them and wax them and I come up and they're vanished. I said, man, just completely vanished. It was like the darnest thing, man. But since I've been in AA, I haven't had one car vanished. You know, since I've been in the program, it seems like. Anyway, uh, I uh, really enjoy having God disclose himself in the program. I can hear it in a person that has two or three days or a person that has, you know, uh, like Rudy, that really puts his heart into uh, what we're talking because uh, it's a life-saving proposition. What I got out of this, Rudy, is... uh, if anything, take someone to through the uh, doctor's opinion and then from there see if they want to continue to work because we get a lot of people, you know, and that, that would be uh, that'd be great to, uh, and that's an easy approach. That's doable. Takes, you know, there's a lot of new people that come in and go, come in and go, and, and, and we're waiting for them to, you know, get a sponsor. Uh, when you're right, you know, we got to go in there and, um, and, and at least give them the, uh, the doctor's opinion, you know, the new person, you know, step by step. I had a, it's kind of funny. I, I tell my, my sponsor, I says, I catch them, you clean them because I can be in a meeting. <laughs> I can be in a meeting and I can count three, four guys that I have sponsored and they fired me and now they're with my sponsor. And I kind of like that, you know. I just I just like boot camp, you know. You get, get them in freshly new and uh, give them all I got and, uh, and then just spin them out, let them go, hopefully. The most important for me is get that commitment, you know, and I call it falling forward, get their hearts, get their minds. If I can get a commitment with them to, you know, stick around for a year and... Uh, and, and that was because that's what I did. You know, I got a commitment. I didn't have a sponsor. I, I was my own sponsor. I was kind of like, I can't figure this thing out. You know, but it was the blind leading the blind. But I had to learn that. I had to go through and learn it. And I have to observe it. That uh, this is the, the best place in all the world. Thank you, everyone. Heavyweights here. It's good to hear. Andy, it's good to see. Uh, so many uh, wonderful people here, you know, that, you know, are in the, you know, uh, they're doing the deal over time. Thank you so much, everyone. And I like to pick uh, Ralph. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, I'm Ralph, and I'm calling What was the, uh, the topic again? My mind is all over the place. Uh, we're talking about working with others. You know, I hadn't, when I first went through it the first two times, I never worked with anybody. I, um, I kept to myself, and I think that's where my problem was, because when I went back out and drank, I drank by myself. So more, you had to have more and more and more, and, uh, you know, I'm, just getting close to my four step 
for the third time. Third time in all these years, and uh, it's it's amazing what I have forgot to what I've learned this time. And I swear that you'll come across something in the big book that you've read it time and time again. You come back to it. Well, I never I never saw that before. There's a lot of things in the big book that I've read before. I had to have read them before, but I never paid any attention to them. Now, since I'm really serious about the program, I am seeing all these words that I never saw before. Anyway, thank you for letting me share. Is anybody else? Is anybody else? Sean. (laughs) Done. Good deal.